0: Hey, how's it going Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning and let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. So instead of asking us where the YouTube is located, where the Patreon is located, where the merchandise is located, you can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, in addition to the existing Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes, we're also giving people invites to the new voice social media networking club, Clubhouse. So, right now it's closed off, it's in beta testing, you have to be an iPhone member, but if you join Patreon, and through Patreon, join the Discord, you will be able to get uh, Clubhouse invites, and the reason why we want people to get those Clubhouse invites is because we're doing a lot of stuff with the creators and the podcast fans, and you need to get invited to take part of that, including a new weekly creator and fans show that we've started over there where you get to interact with us and with each other so definitely become a patron for five dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and without further ado here is the episode take care we want to talk about an article that's been kind of on theme with a lot of stuff we've been talking about recently. Uh, real quick, though, I don't remember if this is said in the pre-recorded intro, but even if you're already a subscriber, uh, there's now an annual option. So you can subscribe uh, at the $5 or $10 a month level, but you could pay for a year at a time and you get a, a 10% discount. So consider that if you're already a patron. Consider um, upgrading to the annual option at champagne, patreon.com champagne sharks. Or if you haven't signed up yet and you're thinking about signing up for the first time, uh, consider doing the annual option, saving $10 10% instead of doing the monthly option and go to champagne sharks.com for just all the links related to the show. And without further ado, let's get to guest Colin Broadmore, and I'll let you introduce yourself and uh, where people can find you and what you do and you know, why people should listen to you, and then we will get into your article.
1: Yeah, how you do? I'm Colin Broadmoor. I'm a cyberculture analyst and contributing editor at Bloodknife Magazine, which is a, a new monthly digital magazine. We do science fiction, fantasy, horror, um, but in terms of capitalism or in the context of capitalism. And we look at these genre from a leftist perspective. We do original essays. um, We do original art. We're going to start running some fiction. Uh, Right now, the staff is uh, our founder and editor, uh, Kurt Schiller, uh, Trevor Dankwater, myself, and then uh, Nick, who's just uh, we refer to as Nick, who isn't on Twitter. And uh, what happens is we uh, we write articles that address. These subjects that aren't taken seriously generally in the mainstream, you know, media criticism of popular culture not only gets dismissed as who cares about that, but there's a resistance to looking at the deep messages of popular things like uh, the MCU, like um, looking at music, like looking at at film and books, young adult things, uh, where not only do those kind of analyses get marginalized, but they're... Is a definite sense by the companies that own those properties that they don't really want you looking at those things. So there's fewer and fewer outlets that uh, really delve directly into that. So we take a, or I like it because I feel we take a serious approach to content that is not generally taken seriously itself. And you can find all my articles there. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Psychohistory, though I wouldn't bother. And it's a. Uh, it's been a a really great experience. It's a new magazine. It's only been open for about uh, six months now. I think we're on our fifth or sixth issue. And uh, submissions, uh, if you've got a pitch, if you've got an idea about any of those things, science fiction, fantasy, horror, especially from a leftist perspective, uh, send it to Kurt at bloodknife.com. And he usually gets back to people within a week. The other important thing that I should mention is that we—it it is paid. Uh, We do pay and we try to keep a, a fairly good side on the uh, the market rate. Uh, but Blood Knife is, we're not making any money. The magazine doesn't make any money. All the money that comes into its uh, Patreon goes
0: right back into paying writers. Did you uh, already mention the, the Patreon site or not?
1: I did, I, mean, I wrote it down. I wrote it down, okay, but cool. I, I'm trying to find it right now. <laughs> i <laughs> trying to find out what we are. I, th- I think we're just we are Patreon slash Blood Knife. I think I think that's it. Yeah, that,
0: that o- should be okay. It. Yeah, because I definitely like the idea of any place that's yeah, yep, yeah, you had it right. Uh, patreon.com forward slash Blood Knife. Yeah, that's great because I definitely I should, want I should, to- I should learn
1: these things. I should. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, and you guys have an annual option, too. So that's that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's pretty good. Because, I mean, there's so few avenues willing to um, pay a market rate for stuff. But also, to get into any of these places, you kind of have to do a lot of direct. So um, doing, like, intelligent stuff that goes against the grain further hurts your uh, chance of, you know, getting stuff published. So I think that makes even more... Uh, incentive in people's minds to not do the kind of stuff you guys are doing at at blood knife because i think you can't really i think do something that comes out too hard against the content glut and when your newspaper is owned by um time warner or owned by uh, jeff bezos or you know something like that like i don't think it's really incentive incentivized because even journalism now is part of the content glut so right right
1: I mean, if you, and and I come my my particular background uh, before I started writing for Blood Knife and my my day job now is I come from academia. I write uh, journal articles about subjects that no one will ever care about, and um, you know nobody ever reads. And if I were to try to write about these issues, that you know would be of interest to people, would be something that the general public recognized. That's never going to make it through uh, a journal process because the subject matter itself is not taken seriously, let alone from a leftist perspective.
0: I think one of the catch-22s about this stuff that allows it to be underexamined is even because on an individual level, it's a lot of the things you describe in here are ephemeral, low stakes, endless, a glut you know, cheap, disposable, not owned in a cloud, uh, not tangible, not revisited very often because it's always being pushed out of your awareness. Uh, Like none of it feels like an important lasting work. It's easy to kind of, you know, dismiss it. But cumulatively, it's the biggest shaper of culture right now. And people, I think, underestimate it's worth as something to be criticized seriously um because because it has that built-in defense of oh are you really gonna um talk about the impact of like slash fiction on society are you really gonna talk about um the negative impact of marvel movies they're made for kids dummy you know but that same place will write something about how there being a female jedi is uh inspiring women every like there's kind of weird hypocrisy to it because when it's time to cheerlead and champion this stuff they will claim that lady ghostbusters is breaking boundaries and inspiring young girls and wonder woman the movie has shown young girls for the first time that women could be heroes as if no real woman has done anything heroic which is insulting it in and of itself or right. that, that you have to raise money to send kids to see Black Panther because it's going to help them climb out of poverty or something. It's it's all this weird stuff. Yet, the minute you criticize it, um, one of the fans will be like, oh, wow, you know, look at me. I'm criticizing a movie for um, kids. The one that I was just saying was going to save the world, you know, how stupid are you or the publications Yeah, yeah saying that. Mean, it's it's it, an interesting if, world.
1: If The second you press pause on any of the constant this is great this is saving us this is the next big thing this is fighting trump or whatever it was 2 months ago you know the second you say okay well let's really look at that then there's immediate pushback and uh it's it's one of those things where the power of media as you said shapes the culture it shapes everything that we understand about the world if you think back to the Moment the moving image gets introduced when movies or before that Nickelodeon start happening, and we have the moving image. People in across the world aren't traveling, you know, nobody is able to go and see a live lion. Let's say some guy from Kansas isn't able to go see what a lion looks like, so Hollywood brings him a lion and puts it up on the screen. It gets to define the lion, it gets to define social practices. There's a there's a book, um and I'll remember the author's name 20 minutes after this interview is over, about how the way we kiss was invented by Hollywood uh, romantic scenes. Social practices, how we hold ourselves physically, how we look at each other are all shaped by these moving images that we're constantly bombarded with because we can't get out into the world. We can't go out and meet people from other cultures all the time, or, or most people can't. I mean, fortunate people can travel. But for everyone else, so much of our life and our understanding both of ourselves and every other human being, animal, everything on the planet is handed to us through media representation. And then at the same time, you're not supposed to look behind the curtain on any of that. Is
0: is that a book by Neil Gabler?
1: Oh, I think it might be. I think it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I,
0: I I have that book. It's uh, If it's what I'm thinking of, it's Life, the Movie, How Entertainment Conquered Reality. Yeah, I think that is it. Yep, yep. I mean, if it's not the same book, it's at least the same topic. He talks about how a lot of things that we take for granted as part of the culture that was actually created by by the movies it's a very similar similar topic uh and you know like different people have an incentive in trivializing this stuff like i think uh, academics at the journals that you talk about who you know wouldn't want this stuff to be published they don't really have an expertise or a grasp on it you know uh they don't understand the world of fan fiction or slash fiction or um hundreds of years of of Pop culture and stuff, so it would be like having to relearn everything from from scratch, and it would also have to upend their world. You know, the yeah. idea that this stuff that I've looked down upon pretentiously, I have to now uh, take seriously. So I think that's their incentive, but also I think like different people are invested in the same trivializing project, but for different uh, reasons, and you know, selectively. So the those fans we talk about do it for a different reason because they are themselves engaging childishly in in all this. Because what they'll do is, like you said, the person says... I used a very specific example of the first time I really noticed it. I remember when um, The Dark Knight by Christopher Nolan first came out, I kept getting inundated with how this elevated the form. It finally made uh, legitimated uh, superhero comics and superheroes by being super realistic and the hyperbole was out of control, that this is as politically sophisticated as any movie or as psychologically sophisticated as anything you've ever encountered in the movies. It just happens to be about superheroes. So then I started saying like little things like, okay, if this is such a smart movie, how on earth was Joker able to plan a gap in the buses in midtown yeah. traffic when he escaped the bank? Like like that yeah. that gap in the buses is so stupid. Did he line did he hire the school buses to do the gap? Or why is it when you couldn't have the joker with real white skin because supposedly that's too fantastic you have to be grounded in reality so he just has this lazily hastily applied uh grease paint right because you know realistic so i'm like why is he in the in the precinct sitting around and they're lamenting that they can't identify him and they ran his fingerprints and did all this stuff but he's sitting in the cell with face paint i'm like why did it not cross their mind he just wiped the paint off his face and broadcast his face across the media across everything so he's just sitting there with just this easily removable face paint and they're like how do we how do we figure out who this guy is this guy's got a stumped if one of those some kind of identifying thing you know and, and his mug is is not uh considered so i was pointing out like uh really childishly simplistic mistakes that the movie was uh making despite you know, people wanting it to be, um, considered like, for example, uh, Harvey Dent is the DA. He oh, is, yeah. is in charge of the state, right? So, uh, he and the other lawyer that Maggie Gyllenhaal is playing, they're sitting around trying to think of how to prosecute a gangster and they're sitting there. What do we do? Damn, what do we get this guy? <laughs> and then someone says, I've got it. They were, uh, uh, but they were waiting for this guy for so long back. They had enough time for Batman to, to go to like Hong Kong or something. I don't know how he crosses the international borders. He gets this guy, brings him back across international waters again. Like, somehow he, nobody spots him flying across. I don't know how much fuel is in that, um, whatever yeah. bat tank that he has, bat, that's right. Bat, bat plane. Comes back. When he finally gets there, that's when they're finally thinking, okay, what are we going to charge this guy with? Like, so, so you were trying to think of how to extradite this guy, do all this stuff. You had no case. It took you like, weeks or however, however long it was to come up with RICO, which is like, you know, five seconds brainstorm is the first thing you think of. But on top of that, your state DA, RICO is federal. You don't get to prosecute that. A, a DA cannot prosecute RICO. That gets taken to um, the federal prosecutor. Uh, that gets bumped up. So it wouldn't even be your, be your case. DAs can't can't do RICO. So, you know, I was just bringing up all these, all these dumb stuff. i I'm thinking, okay, after all this Talk about how this is like the most smartest adult movie ever. And then all I kept getting in response was not anybody actually trying to defend it as an adult movie, but saying, oh, look at me. I take kids' movies uh, seriously. But it would be yeah. the same person who had spent yeah. like a gut gush- that I was responding to. Did a whole gushing article about how grown up this was.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny because The Dark Knight 2 is one of those moments, uh, you know, on my my own road of questioning media um you know i was i was becoming more and more anti-capitalist at that point and i'm watching the dark night and you've got that famous line uh by alfred where he's like some people just want to watch the world burn and he that comes after a story where he's talking about being a mercenary um working for uh, some rich dudes who keep having their caravan stolen they're ca- trying to. Pay off and and uh, places and they're sending all these gems around and some bandits keep stealing all the gems and so they send Alfred and his friends in to kill him for ruining up this supply line, this bribery supply line. And Alfred is astounded when he finds that the bandit has just been throwing these gigantic, you know, rubies, this fist-sized ruby or whatever he says away and just leaving it. And then his his take from that is some people just want to watch the world burn. And I remember listening to that and being like, really? I mean, (laughs) what the point? What's the point of a giant fish sized ruby? You can't eat it. You know, it doesn't actually, it only is a signal of, of rarity, of wealth. It's only a marker of money that's valuable under capitalism. What, what use is it? So he is disrupting these chains of money that's flowing around his, his, banded area but he just wants to watch the world burn and i mean when we consider that or as i started considering it and, and you know this isn't original to me or anyone else when you consider that as an american kind of way of looking at the world oh well they hate us for our freedoms and these kind of vague nonsensical generalizations that we use to avoid looking at the rationale behind the actions that resist our empire. And it's it's something that, that struck me. The Dark Knight is, you know, a kind of a turning point, I think, where a lot of people, myself included, you know, started saying, we have to start looking at this. We have to start thinking about what these media really are trying to tell us. And, you know, until something like Blood Knife came along, this was just Spamming my D and D group with these takes until people would say, "Please stop!" But you know, we kind of do need to to look at this stuff.
0: And and you know what else, with that example you just described, um, is I think it very much touches on uh, Mark Fisher's capitalist realism. This Mm -hmm. idea that uh, people can't imagine a world without capitalism anymore; that has just become it's it's created a paucity of imagination. Like people literally can't fathom. It feels right. like it's always been here and always will be, and it's just like an inevitability. And I think that moral is very informed by that. This idea that anybody who doesn't, you know, buy into the value norms of capitalism, you know, the only thing they could possibly have is a, a worldview as incoherent as I just want to see the world burn. Like right. that's the extent to which capitalism uh, is the world to them. A world yeah. can't survive without uh, capitalism,
1: you know. And I think I think with with the uh, you know people, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. If
0: oh, we yeah, couldn't, if real. we
1: couldn't, if we couldn't actually imagine the end of capitalism, then capitalist media wouldn't need to keep poking us and you know keep dragging us back in, keep distracting. I think you know the function of media today, <laughs> the function of all these things, is. Uh, spectacle. I mean, it is the spectacle, and that's you know one of the things I I talk about uh, in the the articles. I use the the metaphor of, of the hungry ghost, which uh, you know there are these ghosts that have this this constant hunger, and if you let them go, if you let them you know get too many of them, or if you let them do their own thing for too long, they'll start injuring the living or you know taking out their hunger on the living. So what you do is you propitiate them with paper mansions, paper money that you burn, and they're satisfied by the smoke of that. And I think that's the role of media today. It's the paper money. It's the paper blockbuster that keeps people, you know, feeling like they have something, feeling that they own something. But what started, um, you know, that article for me, the it came from a place of, I was sitting there, it was actually, it, it was kicked off literally by uh When I found out that Wonder Woman 1984 was going to be, whatever, 30 bucks, and then you'd get it for two days or whatever, and then it would be gone again, I was like, what do we own? What does a fan own in 2020, in 2021? What is fandom in the 21st century? And start going. No, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, if we look at across all fronts, from fan works, from our owning of media, even to the streams, to the way you know, streaming sites and streaming content works, we're left with a, a general feeling of emptiness. You're not holding on to anything real at the end of the day.
0: I have something that I'm that I wonder about, right? And it comes down to the ownership thing. Agree with you that we are owning less and less. I totally I totally agree with that. We're owning more we're owning less and less. Here, here is what I wonder, though. What was this time of hyper-ownership kind of giving us, the one that hyper-ownership as empty consumerism and collection of totems? Mm-hmm. And what, what I mean by that is, think that there's something damaging in this way that we don't own anything, but I also think that it was easy to give up owning stuff because we devalued ownership right before we hit this step so i mean like you would go to a lot of people's houses and they would have like uh their prize collection of a thousand comic books but mm, yeah you couldn't touch the comic books they were just in airtight bags I remember there were these bags called Mylar's. I, when I used to yeah, collect comics, yeah. had Mylar bags, and the Mylar bags were five dollars compared to like the regular pla- the regular plastic bags. Turned out later, it turned out the Mylar bags evaporate and turn your comics yeah. yellow. So actually, yeah, uh, I bought those bags to protect my extra valuable comic books, and they ended up. Uh, Ruining them, something like very ironic about about that. But I mean, like, so I go to so many people's places. I go to people's places. One of the few things you still can own are people still care about owning not the movies themselves, but the Funko Pops based on the movies. But I'll go to people's houses and they'll have shelves of Funko Pops in the box. Like, yeah. it's not like the old days where you took your toys and you mashed them together. You know, when your friends came over, you took the action figures and you're just mashing them together. You're mashing. Yeah. Optimus Prime with Voltron. It's not like before we went to your friend's house and there was a stack of comics, and when you go to his house, you would take turns reading comics. You'd be in a room. And you, like, people would be like ownership itself just became this capitalistic exercise of signaling. It was some kind of um, what's his name? Thorsten Ve- uh conspicuous consumption type of. Right. There was, yeah, there's something psychologically <laughs> devalued about ownership already. So, like, I think even going back to ownership, I don't know if that would really reverse anything because I think this devaluing of everything from being works to just content changed the state of ownership anyway. You know, if this is not a great work that I'm going to reread over and over again, if it's just like an ephemeral quick thrill cheaply slapped together, then it doesn't bother me at all to just put it in a a bag without ever reading it once or maybe never reading it at all.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think... I, I tend to look at ter- things in terms specifically of uh, technology and how changes in technology have changed uh, our values um, as uh, culturally and, and even as humans, how technology changes us. One of the things that I try to look at or one of my main focuses is, is the internet and the phases of the internet or transitional moments in the internet and one of the things that play into what you're talking about there there's always there was always that one guy that you would know who had to have his comic books in a bag to begin with whereas everyone else was you know reading yes. the comic books but when ebay came along and you could stick a dollar amount on things from the past all the trash all you know the chewed off hand he-man figures all the broken Star Wars, spaceships, all that crap from childhood because of the combination of nostalgia and market then suddenly started make oh, well, you can't, you that's better be preserved. And then we started hoarding everything. We started keeping everything in boxes after that. Oh, I need to have two of these Funko Pops. One that I can, I don't know what you would do with a Funko Pop out of a box, actually. What do you do with a Funko Pop? It's, it's
0: Yeah, that's a great. It's a, like a, it's but, a religious but, object.
1: How do you but, interact with a Funko
0: Pop? Yeah, yeah. But, but But that's what I mean. Like, these things don't even have real uses anymore. So yeah. it's like, there's nothing to do but. Uh, collect them, but even movies, I don't think really even have uses anymore, except to give you yeah. enough ammunition to um, right. engage more content and debate and start debates on Twitter.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there's really only two genres of movie now. There's only two types of movie that exist now. There is a movie that is not merchandised at release, and a movie that is merchandised at release, yeah. and they're treated in completely different ways. And we interact with media culture through consumption, through buying, and then you know something like uh, Joker comes along, you know uh, Todd Phillips Joker, and it's it's conspicuously not merchandised, and yet it's a superhero film. However, we want to take that, and suddenly the world doesn't know what to do with that because well, where's my Funko Pop of Joaquin Phoenix and that it makes us think oh this isn't selling me a toy anymore uh, this must be that old kind of movie that's selling me some kind of idea and if i don't know what the idea is it could be dangerous so you get that moral panic um through it and even even with with the, the funko pops I, I hate to go back from them, but it's kind of like it is the 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 ur fandom or well not the it's, it is the the iconic 21st century fandom artifact. Because it serves no purpose, it does nothing. You can't even play with it. You can't even make them fight. I mean, what would a fight with Funko Pops look like? And- Yeah, you can't do anything. You you can't do anything with it, but it's led to this Funkoization, this retrospective Funkoization of culture where you can buy a Funko Pop of Alex from A Clockwork Orange. You can take all these films, these Kubrick films, you know, these films that were designed to resist easy consumption and have been reconstituted in this easy consumable Funko Pop form against you know whatever the original goals are. So even things that you know were prickly, messy, resistant to um, easy consumption have now been retrospectively added to a full line. So I think the purpose. What does the Funko Pop do? It signals, you know, it signals here's my taste. I do this. And what does taste do? It is now our identity. We identify as fans and You like Joker. You're a dangerous person. I like Black Panther. I am the right person. I'm the kind of, I'm a safe person. I'm a person who wants to empower people where we only understand ourselves through the kind of media we consume. So the Funko Pop becomes a physical representation of our politics, of our perspective. And when you attack that Funko Pop, when you attack the culture behind it, when you attack the media, then it's, oh, you're attacking the person. That's why You know, when I go against uh, fandom, when I write something against fandom, I I try to keep it general because I know people identify as their fandom now, and they see attacks on fandom as attacks on themselves. And the only difference between a toxic and a non-toxic fandom today is whether it conforms to the corporate desire of the media company that's putting out the film. So you say The Last Jedi is bad, you are part of a toxic fandom because you are rejecting uh, the film. Now, if you like a thing, you can do whatever you want. You can bully people. There was uh, recently uh, another writer, R.S. Benedict, had uh, a take uh, about a a month ago, and it was a fairly innocuous uh, take about uh, fan fiction not being truly transgressive in a in a real sense. and it was immediately uh, recast and uh, received bad faith readings that oh, this is attacking uh, queer literature because fan fiction allows queer potential and you know you're attacking these things but and and blue check marks picked it up and you'll see that institutional power will immediately, wed itself to that kind of uh, attack. And it will sanction that kind of bullying, that kind of dog Um uh, And those, if you're, as long as you are in line with media conglomerates, you will never be a toxic fan, whether you're, you know, sending somebody death threats. But all you have to do to step out of that and be considered toxic is to say, I don't know, I don't like your movie. And that's it. You've crossed the line.
0: Yeah. And it also goes in reverse too, in that if you... Hmm. If as long as the thing is, it depends on if the thing is uh, considered by this blue check class as right or wrong, then things can be made different. So, for example, um, the Joker is, you know, and personally, I didn't uh, personally like the Joker that much, but I just liked it for a different reason. All the people trying to say uh, white men, tears and cells, hmm. you know, and that silliness like I, I just thought didn't really have much interesting to say. It just was taking, like, I felt like it was faking its depth by, the guy was was just tracing Martin Scorsese and, right. and Fight Club. And then, so it looks like a portrait because it traced someone else's portrait. But, you know, the tracer doesn't have any actual ideas really about art. He's just tracing something. But then when you look at the tracing, you can see a lot of the, you know, intent or whatever of the original artist and it's easy to mistake that for uh so, so i didn't really feel like todd phillips really had anything interesting to say except uh hey isn't martin scorsese cool you know like, like that was my problem with right. it and there was stuff in there but the stuff was almost in there um because a lot of things from king of comedy and and taxi driver and fight club still resonate today because they were prescient right. movies you know but right um uh, That wasn't really how it was being engaged in the media, either pro or con, but what kind of happened is the same people who would like to say, oh, let people enjoy things, you know, when you're um, uh, criticizing like this, you know, glorified uh, fan fiction, uh, diversity, woke capitalism stuff, you know, like, um, say like Lady Ghostbusters or something, something that seems to be kind of a a cheap pander. Those same people, if you like, The Joker, and they think of it as some kind of uh, rallying cry for reactionary white men. All that let people enjoy things stuff goes out that window. All that stuff about the only thing you can do wrong is not like something goes out the window. Suddenly, they're the reverse version, the bizarro version of all those people who hate uh, last sorry the force awakens based on one trailer with the black stormtrooper and a female jedi like you know they'll be just as trolly as lady ghostbusters hater they'll brigade and bully and do all the same stuff and in a way they almost get more of a pass for it because they're ostensibly you know doing it on the behalf of these vaguely noble multiculturalist pluralist ideas of diversity or feminism or whatever, even though none of this stuff is anti-racist or feminist or um, pro-gay in any real substantial systemic way at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, and with with Joker, I think uh, especially that it's it's any depth that it has, like you said. Is accidental because it's either drawing on its antecedents, you know, it's that homage to, to Scorsese, or it's uh, you know Todd Phillips sitting there saying, "Oh well, how how would uh, you know social services and 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 things maybe lead to someone becoming Joker-like?" And it's well, I have to kind of look at material conditions of New York at that time, which really hasn't changed that much. And he, it's accidentally, once you start looking at the material conditions of life, everybody should be a joker, really. So, you know, you get these pieces and there was a, it was a great article. Actually, um, the article that made me think, yeah, you can write on these subjects was, uh, Leslie Lee III's, uh, The True Villain of Joker is neoliberalism. And, um, you know, I read that. I read that article where he lays out how you know whatever else you think about Joker as as work of art, it it kind of captures some realities and it it implicates in a way why why things are, are so screwed up, and that becomes dangerous. Um, and we could we could talk about how blue check marks don't want that uh, instability. the the fin The fin trailer. Uh, you know where John Boyega got all that that hate, and and everyone was going crazy about that. And you know the argument for fandom is that it will uh, you know fan fictions, fan art, fan works allow these marginalized voices to come out. It'll it's a, a way to uh, kind of bring out something. That's that's better than the actual content. And I the other the other day I sat down and I looked at it because we can we can there are ways to trace this. There are ways that you can put your finger down and say okay let's test this theory. And one of them is the Force Awakens, where uh, Alan Dean Foster is writing the novelization for the Force Awakens. He's writing the uh, he's setting up the romance between Finn and Ray. And Disney comes to him and says, take that out of the novelization. And he's like, well, it's, it's in the film and aren't you going to go with it? And they say, no, remove it. So he has to remove that. Now, it's obviously set up in the film, The Force Awakens, but we know from The Last Jedi on that that was never followed up. So here's an area where we have a truly transgressive option. I mean, the transgressive option to the point where the media conglomerate that owns the IP doesn't want you to write it in the official novelization, how does fanfic respond to that? If you go to Archive of Our Own, which is the, the biggest fanfic site at the moment, Finn-Rey pairings are so few that they don't even make the listing. Even uh, Kylo Ren Reader has about 7,000 more story options than Finn-Rey. And everything, the largest ones, are Kylo ren Ray, which becomes the official corporate pairing. And, you know, it's because there really was something transgressive in Finn Ray. If we go back, you know, it, it, it throws back to Star Trek and the Kirk Uhura kiss, where that is still, you know, the, the where the the South blew up and it became a thing that gets referenced, even though there were possible um, you know, antecedents to that and it, it may not have been the, the actual uh first televised um kiss. But there's still Even more shocking today, too shocking for Disney, is the idea that a black man can be a hero in love with and in a romance with a black woman. And John Boyega has spoken about this. He did that GQ interview and he got a backlash for it. People saying, oh, it's sour grapes. Oh, you're jealous of Adam Driver. Oh, just shut up and enjoy your money. And fandom didn't fix any of that. Fandom didn't even try because. The, the same biases for Disney are the biases of the fans because we imbibe those biases from the media that we are fed.
0: Um, have you... I talk about this essay a lot. I think it's a very good essay for kind of understanding how a lot of discourse happens today. But have you ever heard the uh, essay on bullshit by Harry Frankfurt? <laughs> no, no. Oh, yeah. It's an interesting essay. and. and- I know people are probably sick of hearing me talk about it, so I'll try to uh, sum it up fast. But it's basically it talks about how um, bullshit is different than a lie, even though they're kind of used interchangeably. But a lie is about trying to deceive you about the content of the statement. It's a statement being made to deceive you about the truth value of the content of the statement. You know, so it's like I know a, I know a that I know that a tie in the box is red. I want you to believe the tie in the box is blue. So, you know, I tell you that the tie in the box is, um, you know, blue, Like, like that's a lie. It has to be intended to deceive about, you know, the actual content of the statement. Bullshit, a statement that may or may not be true, but the dishonesty in it is that it's intended to deceive you about the nature of the person making the statement. So say, for example... I want to convince you that I know what color tie is in the box, you know? Uh, so I guess that the tie is blue. I don't know if the tie is red or blue. I just want to um, sound like an authority on what's in the, what's in the box. So I actually don't... The truth value doesn't really matter so much as can I preserve the image of myself that I'm trying to sell to the person? So if it turns out that the, that the tie is blue then hey, even better. I got lucky. But if it turns out that the tie is red, if I can convince the person then that, hey, I think somebody swapped out. They're like, hey, where did you leave that box? or you left it in that room? Was it unattended? Oh, I think, somebody, I think somebody might've went in there. I saw somebody weird come in and they look kind of funny. I think they might've swapped out the tie. If at the end of the day, say the person buys that, it doesn't matter if I was wrong or not. I've preserved the idea that I'm an authority in what was in the box. You know what I mean? Uh, right. so, so so, bullshit is something that has to be plausible. And as long as it uh, works for selling the idea that I want to sell, uh, the, truth ac- the truth aspect is irrelevant. But the interesting part about bullshit that Harry Frankfurt says is that with um, a lie, you have to constantly be aware of what the truth is because uh, to intentionally tell a lie, you have to be telling the opposite of the truth. But bullshit, you don't have to know what the truth is. All you have to do is just plausibly say things that um, you know, might be true and sound and sound believable and get people to buy into that and buy into the image that yourself you're trying to sell. And the reason why I bring that up is that I think there's a lot of that with the fandom that you're talking about. And what I mean by that is They'll say things like, like, and, and this goes to your John Boyega point. This is why I went through that digression. Um, those people who go to John, those people when The Force Awakens was first coming out and all those reactionary white guys were trolling and reacting to John Boyega, all these people, I think, were just doing what we were talking about when they defended him. Like, this is what I like, um, and if you go against what I like, Then you're attacking me, and I don't like that. uh, So I'm going to, you know, say whatever I have to say to defend it. Like they're just bullshitting. They don't care if it's true or not. But they'll be like, uh, "Why do you hate diversity? This is a big. This is a big um, step for representation and black people. This is such and such and such. But when those people later became uh, Raylos, because I'm sure a lot of those Raylos were among the same types who were, you know, angry at the re- white reactionary nerds they had no problem treating john boyega the exact same way that the white right because they were just bullshitting none of it was true or false they didn't even know if it's uh true or false because they don't even care so much as is this a plausible argument that will support support my fandom and i think that's what a lot of fandom is now it's just bullshit it's not lies it's not woke lies it's just bullshit they just say whatever is plausible if i can give a woke rationale to why i'm taking um this stance, that makes it seem like i'm doing it for good reasons so then you know that's the same reason why people will be um saying hey i'll give another example game of thrones season eight throughout the first two or three quarters of yeah, around the first two or three quarters of season eight, a lot of people are saying, you know, the quality of this is really going down. It sucks. But a lot of the people were enjoying the, you know, Slay Queen, Khaleesi, uh, the yeah. D- Queen of Dragons fan fiction-y type stuff. Oh, Arya's a badass. We don't care. So they would just be telling you, you know, let people enjoy things. Why are you pushing your, you're being a fascist, a fan fascist, you're forcing right. your views on people. But then when they botched, when they botched, khaleesi in their eyes and gave her implausible heel turn and then um messed up other things and just had a horrible last two episodes all those same people i recognize some of the same names uh attacking and saying yeah and suddenly all that you can't be negative or let people enjoy stuff was out the window because it was bullshit it was never true It was just saying whatever you have to say to defend your fandom
1: well that's i mean i think it's something that's that's changed um recently we might even be able to put a date on it because if you go back you know when i was a kid in in, and growing up and in fandom and things like the the 90s the fandom wasn't thought of in terms of social justice um you were a nerd i mean you were a nerd you knew that it was your own thing and you and you liked it you liked doctor who not because you were changing the world or empowering people it's because you liked doctor who and you were the only guy who who knew it um but around The Obama era, I think specifically around the debates for marriage equality, you start getting uh, these shows, these fandom directed um, TV shows, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is a fandom that is one of the oldest fandoms, and it's a fandom where you see every phase of fandom in. But you take a look at the Sherlock TV show uh, that came out around that time. Uh, in the Obama era, you took a look at the Robert Downey Jr. things where they play at. You know, they they use the, the queer baiting. They play at the oh, isn't this cute? We're going to keep mentioning. Uh, this pairing together or keep making it look like Holmes and Watson, maybe these romantic partners with a nod and a wink while you'll never, you'll never actually get them to be romantic partners. And, you know, uh, JK Rowling starts, you know, after finishing all her books, suddenly is like, Oh, and Dumbledore was gay too. And all these things come out and suddenly fandom starts adopting or co-opting really and appropriating the language and uh, identity of social justice it suddenly sees itself as part of the fight for marriage equality before that slash fiction from when it starts in star trek when it continues up until that point everybody knew that it was mostly written by straight white women who just kind of fetishized in a in a kind of questionable way um, you know, same-sex relationships between men. A lot of it was ex- had extremely homophobic content. It would always fit into a who is the wife, who is the husband in this pairing kind of thing, which has now uh, become transferred to the more acceptable who's the top, who's the bottom. But it really comes down to the same thing. But during that fight for marriage equality, um, and that wasn't so long ago, uh, it really adopts and sees itself as a wing of that fight. Oh, we're normalizing these relationships. We are celebrating same-sex relationships. No, you're just doing what fandom always did, but now you're justifying it by pretending that you're an activist for other people's rights, for human rights, and then this got expanded out where it's now, oh, if you're attacking fan fiction, you're attacking queer voices, you're attacking diversity. Uh, you're attacking, um, you know, oppressed people. When, yeah, as of 2012, I think it was like still Archive of own was uh, 76% of the authors were, were white. I think it's come down a little bit, but I mean, still, it's overwhelmingly uh, produced uh, by white people and by white women, especially. Um, so it's one of those things where it now has taken on this appearance and it's exactly like you said, it's the bullshit of social justice because it has borrowed it and just poses as a force of social justice. But if we look at any one thing that it claims to do, we find out that it either doesn't succeed or doesn't even try to do those things.
0: Yeah. Or they'll easily, when it's, um, Convenient or inconvenient uh, flip modes or turn on people mm. like they right. turned on um, like they turned on John Boyega when he didn't yeah. say the things they want or whatever and yeah I want to make clear because I know there's always people who uh, hear things in bad faith it's not that the idea of social justice in general is bullshit it's that right um, right they're using social justice um, to mask bullshit as in things that they don't really inquire if any of what they're saying is true or not, even among themselves. Like, do I really believe this? They just lodge arguments based on convenience and and plausibility. And I think a lot of that came from Tumblr. The way it was explained to me was that a lot of the modern social justice discourse would come from um, Tumblr, where Tumblr had a, uh, decent-sized fan community of of queer and and of color people, and one thing that they would try to do to help win shipping wars, you know, where they would say uh, the example that you know was given to me a lot was um, these sh- these ships that would happen with. There were two that I was given as examples. One was Sleepy Hollow, where there was a black woman on the show, and the other one was Doctor Who, where one of his um, one of his companions was a was a black woman. And what they would say is, oh, uh, they would work in real social justice issues or whatever into defending the ship. Like, you know, uh, black women have been historically oppressed in this way, and they have been, you know, uh, forced to conform their hair. Like, at some point, someone discovered that this was a good piece of ammunition to lend legitimacy to the ship, as in saying, hey, if you advance this ship, uh, you're actually... One of the many reasons among the fact that, you know, I just like this character and I see myself in this character. And if I see her hook up with the hunky hero, I'll feel validated in a way I never have watching fiction before, where it's always the conventionally attractive thin, thin white woman who or the straight person who ends up with the hero. Never the never the the gay character or the same sex character or the woman of color. Instead of saying that now you've, you know, thrown this thing out. So they would throw out all this stuff, whether it was accurate or not. Uh, As soon as it was accurate, as in what they were saying was true about the um, social justice data or the facts, sometimes it wasn't, but it wasn't even really about fixing that social justice issue to begin with. It was about getting ammunition for for the ship. But then eventually a lot of those people actually just started fancying themselves activists and started talking about activism without the pop culture and this person claimed to me that based on their experience with tumblr they think a lot of activists actually started out as fans and that's why a lot of them have this weird ability to kind of flatten everything or jump back and forth all the time between acting like tumblr fans and acting like these weird activists it's, a, it's an interesting thing last thing i'll yeah. say i'm sorry i rambled on a little bit but last thing i'll say is um one of Frankfurt's key points with the difference between truth and lies versus uh, you know, bullshit and non-bullshit is that uh, because a liar has to always keep track of the truth to make sure that he's saying the opposite of it, he, he said that both the truth teller and the liar both have a commitment to keeping track of the truth. Uh, liars are actually as much in service to uh, keeping the memory of what was true or false alive you know as as truth tellers are but bullshitters always invariably lose track of the truth because they were always just saying moment to moment whatever was convenient so he's so what right. he says that in a world of bullshit the real danger of the world of bullshit that makes it worse than a world of lies is that after a while nobody even remembers what the truth was anymore and i think that's where social justice and fandom really is like no one even really knows why they even, if they even really believe the things that they're saying anymore, they've lost the plot. Right.
1: Because because it's, you know, social justice. If we think about it, if we think about where these fights began, they're fights about really people not being able to live their lives, people not being able to live safely, people being murdered by police, people being prevented by the government from marrying the people that they love. And then suddenly it gets transformed into... Uh, a veneer of morality over my preferred ship as a justification for my preferred ship, which, uh, you know, I liked before. And now I just have a new way of defending myself and of feeling like I'm doing something about it, that it is now a productive force. Yep. Uh, That fandom is productive, that fandom is fighting for something, that I'm not only a fan, I'm not only consuming, I'm giving back, I'm positive, I'm fighting the good fight, when it's not. It's not in the same way that, you know, the uh, more women prison guards uh, joke works, you know, it's that same thing, it's that woke washing of corporation, the military industrial complex that we see, the woke washing of empire and capitalism where it just makes it harder for someone to talk about that, harder for us to attack these things, because now it's like, oh, oh, wait, you, you don't like diversity. It's like, no, I don't like bombing people in other countries is what I don't like. But you can't do it because uh, the two have become conflated. And where is it mostly done? It's mostly done in media. And how is it done culturally? It's we consume this media and then we reflect it back in fan works and as we adopt this as our identity and it's it's uh it's it it adds a layer of bullshit it obfuscates the levers of power it obfuscates what's really going on at the same time that you know fandom thought it was great for for suddenly shipping two men as they had been shipping all their lives um you have articles in forbes saying you know uh, marriage equality is a good idea because um Same-sex couples uh, are less likely to have children, therefore they'll have more disposable incomes, the incomes will be combined, this will be good for the economy. So there's always this material basis. There's always, this transgression, as far as it exists, is always allowed. And that's why, you know, you will see uh, corporations play with fandom because it becomes free PR for them. It's great to turn people into mini fanatics for your product. You don't have to defend it yourself. They will add content for you. If you don't wanna put down uh, a queer pairing, don't worry. Somebody out there is gonna write it for you and you can just wink at it And everyone will think how great you are for allowing it to go. When a truly subversive fan work is something that the IP with the intellectual property holder would want to shut down, something truly transgressive is not allowed to exist. So if you see a fan work getting, you know, out there, you got to question who allowed it because at the end of the day, we own nothing. We have control of nothing you know, we, they can shut you down in a minute if they feel like it. So if they're allowing you to run on, you got to start wondering why they do.
0: You know, and and it's, it's one thing that's really uh, interesting to me about all this is how, how people, an extra benefit, I think, of this to people is it allows you to kind of disguise the extent to which you are a mirror image of a lot of the people that you're up against you know kind of like how pro wrestling has like the faces and the heels not so much anymore to to a meaningful extent but you know there was this idea these are the good guys and the bad guys but when the cameras are off they're all getting drinks together it's just um acting i don't think these people get drinks together at the end of the day you know but i do think that the so-called sjw to a large degree and the so-called uh chud a lot of times have a lot of disturbing mirroring of each other in the way that they bully and harass each other for example the, the young adult scene i think if if the if the comics and video game scenes is a place where young white men are vastly bullying everyone else then i would say the young adult scene is a place where the chuds are a lot of times um women and uh poc like a lot of the controversies there are so insane you know like with that student who was complaining about um Some silly YA book that was being forced to be read and that it wasn't very good. And Roxanne Gay and all these like respectable blue checks led like a bullying brigade. And I was like, how is this different than what? milo was doing when he retweeted leslie jones and got a people a lot of people swarming like all these big name blue checks and ya authors with huge followers were just weaponizing their followers to attack the student it was the most ridiculous thing but because it's you know poc doing it they're doing it in the name of you know fighting the white male hegemony of the old canon it, uh it's it's fine it legitimizes the something that to me is just a mirror version of the same thing people are saying is bad. Yeah,
1: because I mean, I think if you look at it, if you think, if you look at it, that that horseshoe works because both sides, both the reactionary forces and, you know, what, what we might call the the woke side of things, they're both defending consumption. They're do- both defending blind consumption. Yep. They just want you to consume different things. One side wants you, you know, uh to be, oh well, if we get rid of if we get rid of statues of of slave owners, uh, how are we going to remember um, that that slavery happened? Like like that's an actual argument. Well, why don't we put up a statue of someone who led a slave revolt? That's not going to happen. So it's certain types of consumption that they fight about and that they want to protect. But both of them want to protect these same systems of of uh, consumption. And to an extent, both sides benefit from the system as it is they benefit and the blue checks ride on the ephemera you know that it comes out of this media spectacle this circus that we live in that's otherwise they would have no relevance yeah. to us all these pundits all these takes you know it's like trump Trump is gone now. What do all those Trump reply guys do now? Now they have to find things to complain about, like Phoebe Bridgers breaking a guitar or something. I mean, they have to try to reinvent themselves because they have nothing to talk about, because all they've been doing is feeding off the shit that has been laid down uh, over the years. And without that, Without that, that entire economy, that entire take economy, the entire cloud economy on both sides collapses. And, you know, that is really the, the, the anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist game is to defeat all that and all those people are opposed to it. And once you start coming in with a leftist take, you will find out who is actually on which side. And the answer is all guns are going to be pointed at you.
0: You know you know what's interesting about that too is that I think in a very real way everything is one genre and it's the genre of content or takes like even movies are takes like 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 you brought up how right I think you said when the woman nineteen eighty four is like a two and a half hour snapchat which is right. you know a great way to put it uh or some movies feel like a giant um Twitter thread or they feel like a, a combination of um Tumblr Tumblr GIFs. Tumblr GIFs. That's that's, that's all they are. And I think in a very real way, everything is kind of like, a movie is not really a movie. A review is not really a review. The interview around the movie is not really a review. The the behind-the-scenes coverage of the movie and how it was made is not really documentary. They're all just um, content and takes. And they're just disguised as different things, so everything kind of feels the same. Like when you watch a show and when you listen to the podcast about the show, there's a way in which they feel like they have equal weight or equal level of substance, right. which is nothing at all. Like, like it's not a compliment to the podcast; it's a uh, insult to the, the series. Like the fact that the the quick coffee, the, the quick um, coffee uh, talk talk. Uh, shop that you have after feels just as substantial as uh the one hour episode you just watched and then the twitter thread after it might even feel even more substantive than than the show like everything feels the same in the way that it didn't before like reading a pauline kale review of the godfather did not feel like an extension the godfather like the godfather in fact like the movies of today but the um the review by Pauline Kale was very much a work in and of itself that was trying to be something distinct from the movie. Like, not only... So, the movies and the interviews on Johnny Carson and the documentary maybe about the making of a movie. Like, there's a very good one about the making of um, Apocalypse Now that a lot of people oh, yeah. talk, oh, yeah. talk about. Uh, or, or the review of a movie. They all felt like different things with their own rules and craft and whatever and they were like separate worlds with separate feelings of weight. Like the Johnny Carson thing might feel a little bit more like fluff or whatever. The movie might feel feel like, you know, middle brow. The review might feel very highbrow or whatever. But they didn't all feel the same. But not only did it feel different from each other, but they feel different than the stuff today. The stuff today on the other hand all feels interchangeable. The 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 interviews just feel like you know parts of the movie the the takes that they have are not real reviews but just discussing easter eggs like hey what are these these about these 50 easter eggs in wandavision like no talk about hey is it good does the plot make sense <laughs> right. no you, you don't ask that because it's a mystery box you're not supposed to know anything you're just supposed to look at um um easter eggs uh, the podcast talks about the easter eggs the show is just you know parading out the Easter eggs and, and responding to like what the fans want. And you talk about this in this article about how the move, the movies or shows are making stuff with the fan fiction in mind. And it's almost like a symbiosis, like, Hey, we're doing some of the fan fiction work for you. And then you can take the ball and just finish the job yourself in your fan fiction. We'll do the queer baiting and we'll set, we'll tee up the ball and then you can just, you know, knock it on the park. On your own, yeah, and
1: I think I think some of this has been made possible, or even made necessary, by technology. Because if we think back to it, <clears throat> excuse me, the 24/7 news cycle begins with the first Gulf uh, invasion. You know, we get CNN, and suddenly we need to fill 24-7 news slots with uh, with content, so it becomes the birth of the pundit, the birth of the the news take. Before that, there would be nights, you know, know, you'd watch the nightly news, or you would watch the end of the week wrap-up news. You'd get the paper twice a day, maybe, if you were a real, like, news freak. Even before that, you go early in the 20th century, the BBC might come to the news and say, there was no news today. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow. So we create this this uh, ecosystem where we need unending content, and that starts on cable TV. At the same time, the internet in those early days was supposed to be a repository. Something Patton Oswald addresses in in uh, his article uh, "Wake Up Fandom" is that um, everything uh, you know, everything that ever was, will be available forever. And that was sort of a promise of the internet, that it was gonna be this giant repository that would connect people, that it would put information in everyone's hand. The cyberpunk rallying cry was that the information should be free, put everything up, you know, internet archive, things like that, are ideas of the old internet. But once the internet infrastructure allowed for video and once enough people were online, that something could go viral starting around 2005 to 2008, you know, with, with YouTube and everything else. Once virality became a thing where nobody, uh, just a nobody, just a clip of a cat, just of a kid at the dentist could suddenly take over the national consciousness, it immediately became something that the forces of capitalism said, hey, this is what we want. And since then, it has been a nonstop crowdsourced reality TV debacle is what we got online. And so all those films that come out now, imagine this. Imagine unplugging yourself completely from the internet, picking up some print newspapers, you know, having it delivered every day, getting some books, going out and living without an internet connection. You wouldn't have streaming. You wouldn't have TV shows, many of which exist uh, primarily in a digital format or are watched in a digital format. You wouldn't have any of this culture. You would live a perfectly normal and happy life, you know, just doing your regular thing, going to work. You wouldn't know what the hell anyone was talking about. But so much of our cultural idea is, uh, or our imagination exists online. And online is all about going viral now. And viral is temporary. Things last seconds. The The internet's memory, oh, things on the internet last forever. The internet never forgets. The internet won't remember what happened last week. Nope. Can you think of a single cultural moment that everyone was like, "Wow, this is the cultural moment that defines us that actually turned out to be something that we were talking about 2 weeks later?" What were the cultural moments of of, you know, the Trump period? Who the hell can remember and it just happened. It's all meaningless. It's all meaningless chatter. It's static, it's background noise, and it's nonstop assault on the senses. It is the spectacle in its like truest refined sense. And the only next step is they need to just start jacking it directly into our heads. Because you know right now we're just watching it all on screens play out. We might as well just plug right into it because it shapes every single look at QAnon. QAnon is just uh, it's like a Buzzfeed of conspiracy theories. It's a conspiracy theory aggregator that has taken all these different things. You want to you want to believe that uh, that Hillary Clinton's eating a baby or or uh, wearing a baby's face? Yeah, okay. Do you believe that? Uh, Joe Biden's a reptile? No, I believe he's a robot. Okay, that's fine. We can put them all together. It's an aggregator conspiracy theory for the 21st century. And everything has become like that. Our internet uh, culture is our only culture. It's created kind of a globalist monoculture. And it's a culture that has no memory of itself and no awareness of anything outside the online. When we say somebody's terminally
0: online, we're all terminally online. And and you know something that I think is very interesting is how the medium keeps changing the discourse. Like, I read a lot of books on media criticism and analysis, and you have books that talk about how literacy in the printed word changed the brain and the culture, something like Walter Ong's *Orality and Literacy. But then you have something right. that talks about how TV changed, um, how movies, you know, changed things like that Neil Gabler book. Then there's things about how TV uh, changed things like um, Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman or The Image by right. Daniel Borstein or things that talk about everything. All those different mediums like uh, Marshall McLuhan. He talks about how that changed oh, yeah. Yeah. a lot of culture in the brain, every single one of them. He kind of talks about all the mediums, but uh the mediums have been changing faster than ever. Like I feel like they change faster than we can produce the books about it because we don't have time and isolation to get the distance from anything. And we don't get enough accumulated time under the thing to really do like a real discussion. So it's kind of like we had under the internet, we had just the general internet. Then we had... um the blog culture, which wasn't quite the same as social media, it was it was different. You know, the blog was halfway between a long-form um, article, what eventually became became like a tweet. You know, the, the blog was something else. And that had a very specific effect on this course. All of it was moving things toward the ephemeral. Like, you know, a sit down book is less ephemeral than a daily newspaper, which is, you know, still less ephemeral than a TV broadcast, which is still less ephemeral than like, you know, a blog post or, or Twitter. Like You know, the difference with the blog post is I just feel like we didn't even really get a chance to really sit in it. It was just gone kind of fast, replaced by like, you know, Facebook and then twitter and everything and if you look at things that were made popular by blogs blogs can keep things alive pretty long like um Men and sopranos and um Mm. i think the last thing that was kind of a blog era created show uh was girls like writers started writing for you know blog for critical bloggers but that seems like a glory days now like compared to like what twitter did to things
1: Yeah, I mean you look at you scroll down your Twitter timeline, right? I mean you look at it. It's we've got what two forty-eight characters and take after take after take. And if you're bored of the takes you have at the moment, just reload. You got a, a bunch of other ones. I mean, we scroll past hundreds, if not thousands, of different takes per day every time we get on that. And Twitter is addictive because it is the promise of infinite content directly to you. And infinite curated content. This is what you want to watch, even if uh, you've got all these promoted advertisements in between. That's fine. You kind of want to watch those too. Maybe you're interested in this topic. So it's it changes our brain. I've got a, a new article that's coming out uh, in the next Blood Knife, um, which I think is being published soon. And I use as, as a metaphor the 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 hermit crab. You know, the hermit crab doesn't grow its own shell. The hermit crab needs to pick up a shell. So the shell to the hermit crab is a technology, uh, but it has become a technology that defines the hermit crab. The hermit crab as a species before shell and after shell is completely different because of the adoption of technology and how that adoption of technology changes everything about it. Our human existence, our human condition is dependent on the technologies that we use. Because the thing that makes us human is, is culture to an extent. You know, we can pass these ideas down, we can communicate with each other through language. Culture and language are the great human evolutionary adaptations. And the technologies that change how those adaptations work change what it means to be human. And you're right, it's happening faster and faster. Uh, to a certain extent, the interfaces have changed as well. Mm -hmm. And we've hit this point where everything is a screen. And the the, the thing about screens, you know, we can look about, look at previous technologies and be like, oh, that's, uh, you know, the steampunk looks so cool or you know that 80s stuff really has a cool look to it the thing about a screen is it needs to become invisible any material that is not part of the screen should be uh, unseen and ideally the entire object should become the screen we always want more screens we always want more image every single technology that we interact with today is the interface of the screen screens dominate our lives and screens present a certain way of thinking about the world, seeing the world, and that changes how we see and experience uh, our own lives, how we value our own lives and what we value in our own lives. Um, so it's, it's just a, a, a different life uh, from what it was even 10 or 20 years ago